right. Okay, so um, I said last week we're going to jump all the way to Revelation chapter 20. We didn't quite make it, or I didn't quite make it, uh, because God stopped me before then. Have you ever had a discussion with God that you're like, dude, I really got stuff I got to get done. I want to get somewhere. But he says, no, you got to wait. Am I the only one who has those discussions with God? Okay. Well, this is one of those occasions. This is one of those occasions where he stopped me. He stopped me at chapter 19 of all places. He couldn't let me get to 20. Stopped me at 19. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to read chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, because I want you to see how the story ends. And then we're going to go back to where we left off. We left off at 11, and we're going to walk from 12 all the way back up to 19. Does that make sense? So how many of you have a seat? Because we're going to be here a second. Did you make plans today? If you're going to miss your lunch plans, don't worry. We have a potluck after church today. We'd love to have you come eat with us. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. It says, After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. He has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Pretty good stuff, right? It, it's consistent with our theme that God wins, right? As the angels and the multitudes and everything, all of creation is saying, hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, our God has triumphed. Hallelujah, the evil is gone. It has been dealt with. It's gone for good. Hallelujah, this is amazing. But it didn't just happen. The story of Revelation is that it took a while to get there. It takes a while to get there. And living in the earth that we are in now, we should be able to pretty easily recognize we're not there yet. And so we left off at the end of chapter 11. 
which, was, which is really the climax of this, that first part of the book as John kind of moves into the second part of a vision. And this vision, this part of the vision, starts with a dragon. It's the very beginning of something we would call Satan's trinity. The dragon has seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on each horn. This dragon is referred to as being ancient. And the word used there is that that he was present from the very beginning. This dragon has been there from the very beginning, from the time that God created, from the very beginning of Genesis. The dragon is waiting, waiting, crouching, just waiting for a woman. A woman to give birth to her son so that he can devour the child. But the child, as it says in verse 5 of chapter 12, but the child was caught up to God into his throne. This, the child, the son, is saved. We know who that son is, don't we? His name is Jesus. But in verse 7 of chapter 12, it says this very interesting thing. It says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. It's strange to you the idea that this dragon, who is clearly the first of the head of Satan's trinity, would be in heaven. That he would have access to the Lord. Because that's where the war took place. It doesn't take place on earth, it takes place in heaven. I don't know about you, but that doesn't naturally occur to me. The thought of a drag of Satan in the form of a dragon or a great serpent or a beast being in the presence of God. But you see, the thing is, the book of Job shows us that clearly Satan was able to come to the feet of the Lord, right? And to say to him, what about your servant Job, right? It's hard to grasp that. And it makes me wonder why. Why would God allow Satan and his angels, his army, because this is a war with an army of fallen angels against Michael and his angels. Why would God allow that to be present? The only thing I can come up with is that God, all the way to the end, still hopes that Satan, yes, even Satan, will see the light. That Satan, yes, even Satan, and his fallen minions will come back to him. And so he gives them an opportunity. Because you can't come back to God if you're not in his presence. You have to allow that. And it might give us some insight in how we should process hope and forgiveness in those who are separated from God and how they might possibly come back to him even if we don't think that's possible. As Deb was praying today for Chelsea, for Stacy and her daughter, Chelsea has been through, she's made some mistakes. But we have hope because of who our God is, right? That she can return to him. The dragon then gives way to the beast from the sea. 
The beast from the sea has seven heads and ten hordes, this time with ten crowns on each horn. But the beast of the sea has no desire to, to devour the sun. The sun has already gone to the Father in heaven. The beast instead turns his attention on all those that follow him. It says that the dragon, in verse 2 of chapter 13, it says the dragon is, gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. You know, Jesus claims the same thing in Matthew 28. Verse 18, he says, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them the things that I have taught you and I will be with you always all the way to the end of the age. Right before he sends out his people on the Great Commission, he claims to have authority over all things. And yet, the beast, because the dragon is saying, I can, no, 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 I can give you authority over all things. Now the beast is claiming to have authority over all things. Do you see why we call this Satan's trinity? Satan is trying very much to make himself equal to God. And he says, if it worked for God, I'm going to go down this road too. In verse 4 of chapter 13, it says, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? If you've ever read Romans chapter 8, verse 31, it says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? Does that not sound a little bit like what Satan is trying to convince the world through the beast that, in fact, he can do. Then nothing, you can't fight against me. You can't stop me. I'm as powerful as God is. Look around at the world and ask yourselves, have we bought into that some? Do we believe that evil is as powerful as our Lord? Do we treat evil as though it is ultimately as powerful as God? Even if we say otherwise, do we act as though we believe? Do, are we scared when things come our way that might threaten us? We were reading in the book of Philippians this morning with the teenagers. Philippians chapter 1. For to live is Christ and for to die is gain, says the Apostle Paul. And one of our kids said, I want to be that. I want to be that. Makes my heart go pitter-patter, right? It's hard for us to be that. It's hard for us to live with every ounce of our being being focused on Jesus, on his mission, on his desires for us, on who he's calling us to be. But isn't that recognizing that he is in fact the mighty one? the one with all of the authority, the one with all the strength, and that none of these other things that might come against us can stop us. It says that he does this for 42 months. We've seen that number before, right? It's about three and a half years. It means what? Already, but not yet. 
The beast of the sea then gives way to the beast from the earth. The beast from the earth, he has two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. It says that he performs great signs. He rains down fire from heaven, something the prophet Ezekiel did. He even brings an idol to life, rejuvenates this idol to the dragon. John will later identify this beast in, John chapter, in Revelation 16 as the false prophet. It's an apropos name. He has two horns like a lamb. He's trying very much to look like who? Jesus, the Lord. But there's something about his voice, something about what he says that reveals he is not, not the Lord. He is Satan. He is the dragon. Jesus says of his disciples, his sheep, that they will know what? They will know his voice. So when the time comes, when, when the false prophet is leading people away from God, pretending to be God but being nothing like him, those who really are attuned to the voice of Jesus will know the voice of Jesus. They will hear the Lord's voice. They will be able to recognize that this one who's pretending is not him. I know Heather's voice very, very well. Heather can laugh from halfway across the building. Y'all can pick her out too now, can't you? Because you've been, yep. Heather likes to laugh, which is great because it means she'll laugh at my stupid jokes, which is great. But I know her laugh because I've been with her for almost 25 years, right? I know her laugh because I've heard it a thousand times, if not a million. I know her voice. How many of you know the way your spouse walks when you can hear them coming down the hallway, right? Those things only come from being present with that person day in and day out. The same could be said for our relationship with the Lord. We will only know his voice instead of the dragon's if we are present with him day in and day out. This chapter, chapter 13, also includes the mark of the beast. If you have seen any of the Left Behind movies or seen any one of a number of end of the world kind of things, the mark of the beast plays a big role. The mark of the beast has been many things over the last 2,000 years. It has been debit cards. If you have a debit card or a credit card, you are carrying with you the mark of the beast. Yep, you laugh now, but when those things came out, people said, that's the mark of the beast. Don't have that. Satan can find you. Or Satan's yours. Or you're his. Sam all confuzzled, right? Some say the mark of the beast is a tattoo. Some say the mark of the beast is literally a mark on your forehead. Some say the mark of the beast is crypto. We look for this mark of the beast 
and try to label something as this mark of the beast that says, yes, this is of Satan and, and this you need to stay away from or else. Oftentimes, though, it's really just about this is something new that I don't understand and so therefore it must be the mark of the beast. He's also given a number. In chapter 13, verse 18, he says, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the, the number, because it is the number of a person. And that number is 666. Everybody knows the number. That's the idea of using this number, this 666 number, to calculate who this person is. How many people over the years have been calculated to be this, this person, this representation of the beast, this representation of evil? It's an ancient concept called gematria or gematria where you take letters in their name and you ascribe a number to them somewhere in the alphabet and then you mix and match and do all kinds of weird things and hocus pocus and all of a sudden it's an it's got to be this person. It's the Emperor Nero. It's, it's Hitler. It's got to be Hitler. Right? Conversation's over. I said Hitler. We're done. It's <laughs> we all laugh because that's ludicrous. But, right? I've heard people say it's this president or it's this politician or it's Hillary or it's this person or, or that person because I've done the math. Can I just tell you? <laughs> That's some fuzzy math. One author says such identifications lead to nothing because if you try hard enough, you can make them lead to everything. The point is not for us to be looking for this magical, mythical piece of information that nobody has discerned before. It's, it's to recognize that if you really know the voice of God, if you really are the one who has understanding, as he said in verse 18, if you really have been walking with him every day and you really know his voice, you will know when someone is leading you away from the Lord. You will know. So you don't have to guess. You don't have to make it up. But you do have to know Jesus in his voice if you're going to tell the difference. You do have to know Jesus in his marks if you're going to tell the difference between his marks and the marks of the beast. You have to know the difference. This is indicative of, of Satan still trying to be the Lord. But I think, I really do think, if you're going to apply some numerology to this project, I really do think that 666 is less than 777. Now that's math, right? The idea there would be that Satan as much as he wants to pretend he is God, will fall short every single time. 
In fact, as we're reading the scripture in chapter 12, verse 9, we saw that the dragon, who represents Satan's trinity, that first is thrown. He's thrown from heaven to earth. Michael and the angels, they're like, get up out of here, and they chuck him down to earth. In chapter 20, if we get into chapter 20, verse 2, it will say that he he is thrown from the earth to the abyss. And then later, from chapter 20, verse 10, it will say he's thrown from the abyss to the lake of fire. Guess what? How many times does he fall short? How many times is he thrown out? Just saying. More math, okay? Just be careful. Don't read more into it than there is, but take it for what it's worth. We have to be able to recognize this one who will pretend but not be him, we also have to recognize that he will always fall short of who our God is. Amen? Okay. So then we move into Revelation chapter 14. Chapter 14 has the, net, the number, the 144,000. We talked about that early on in this series. I'm not going to belabor it. But that's 12 times 12 times 1,000. That means the complete number of the people of God, as complete as it possibly gets. And oh, by the way, because it's multiplied by 1,000, it is a large number. It is a sea of people. It is not a literal 144,000. We also see the three angels in this vision that come bringing three declarations. They come calling people to worship the Lord. It says in Revelation 14, verse 7, it says, Worship the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. He comes proclaiming the fall of something they call Babylon, the one who made all the nations drink the wine of her sexuality, which brings wrath. He comes saying, look, it's coming, it's going to fall. Everything, everything that stands against the Lord, all these false pretenses are going to fall. And then he also come, they also come declaring that those who follow Jesus will find rest, but those who follow the beast will find none. They will find none. And then he has this incredible vision of what he's probably been waiting for the whole time. He sees one like the Son of Man descending from heaven on a cloud. And I don't know about you, but if I was watching that vision, I'd be going, all right, it's time. Here he comes. Let's go. Right? It's time. And then he opens the seven bowls of God's wrath. In, verse, in Revelation 15 and 16, we see the seven bowls. It's a repeat of the seven trumpets, which was a repeat of the seven seals. One author says, Finally, the divine retribution is revealed that was revealed by the seals and announced by the trumpets is implemented in the pouring out of the bowls. This is the time when the Lord is going to show up and put down evil and make it go away. Which brings us to the reason why God stopped me. And there they are. Revelation 17 and 18. The mirror image. 
In Revelation 17, we're introduced to a woman. Remember, if you remember, it was the, and we just talked about it, a woman was giving birth to a son in Revelation 12 that the dragon was waiting to destroy. But now in 17, we're seeing another woman show up. But this woman is not delivering the son. Have you ever seen the movie Annie Get Your Gun? How many of you are old enough to have seen Annie Get Your Gun? It's a musical, right? And there's a song in there that says, uh, anything you can do, I can do better, right? I can do anything better than you. Anything you can be, I can be greater, right? Yeah? Does that sound about right? Pretty close? Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. Yes, I am. <laughs> I really get the feeling that Satan is again trying to say to God, anything you can do, I can do better. You sent this woman, you sent this son, yeah, it got away from my dragon. But when this is all said and done, I'm going to make my own woman and I'm going to figure this out myself. And I'm going to do it better than you. I'm going to win. Because doing it better than God means he gets to take the place of God and he gets to own the world and all of its inhabitants. We see that she's, she's said to be the mother of prostitutes and detestable things. That's, that's what I want on my gravestone, isn't it? The mother of prostitutes, and well, that would be a whole other discussion, and detestable things. None of it is good. The picture you're supposed to get is this woman is pure evil, evil incarnate. And that she is actively leading people towards Satan, towards destruction. Is it literally a woman that's going to show up and be this person? I doubt it. Because the woman is also interchangeably referred to as Babylon the Great. It is likely an entire movement that pulls people away from the Lord. And we're going to get into what that movement is in a minute. It says that she is dressed, dressed in purple and scarlet. She has made herself a queen. That's why the purple, the royal color, but you, she can't get away from the blood. She is covered in the blood of the saints. In fact, in chapter 17, verse 6, it says she is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. She thinks she's in charge. She's acting like she's in charge. And she's willing to kill and destroy anybody in her path to get there. She will rally the kings of the earth to her side. And these will make war against the Lamb. But in case you were beginning to lose hope, in verse 14 it says, These will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Those with Him are called chosen and 
faithful, those with him. And that will be the important piece here. Those with him. Which brings us to Revelation 18. Revelation 18, 1 through 8. And I don't see... Okay. Okay. It says, After this I saw an angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. Can you imagine that? Something so bright the entirety of the earth is illuminated by his splendor. He has called out in a mighty voice, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and her excess. And then I heard another voice from heaven, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mixed a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged in her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am, I am not a widow and I, I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day. Death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with the fire because the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God who judges her is mighty. The day's not going to end well for Babylon the Great, for the mother of prostitutes and all things detestable. So I see some things here. See, first, that what's in the midst of this project in view is the Roman Empire. As John is writing, the people of God are experiencing what it lives to what it's like to live in the Roman Empire where it's all about chasing whatever you want. It's all about getting as much power as you possibly can. It's all about he who has the most toys wins. It's about all of this excess and there, there's more here than just sexual excess. It's very much in sight here is the subject of materialism and greed. The wrongful orientation towards the good things of this world. Making their identity about the things of this world instead of the things of God. The Roman Empire is squarely in John's sights here. But I also think the seven churches are squarely in his sights. Remember, think way back, this thing started with the seven churches, right? They don't stop becoming relevant <laughs> because we moved on from it. They're still part of this. 
He says of Thyatira in Revelation 2, verse 20, he says, But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. And then Laodicea in Revelation 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Sounds very much like the queen who says, I will never die. I will never experience grief. He says in verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and I need nothing. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The Roman Empire is in clear view. The seven churches are in clear view. I guess my next question would be, are we in clear view? Is God asking us whether or not we value the good things of this world more than the goodness of God? That's a tough thing for us to think about, but I think we need to, and this is why God stopped me. We need to think about this. Um, today is the Super Bowl. I'm not begrudging you going to watch the Super Bowl and cheering for your team or cheering against Patrick Mahomes if you're Hayden, because he is. He's been blunt about that. I will ask you this, though. If you're more excited about going to a Super Bowl party than you are about spreading the gospel, then where is our priority? If that excites us more than telling people about life and life eternal, then are we leaning too much into the good things of this world and not enough into the goodness of God? Are we following Babylon the Great and not the Lord Almighty? If we get more, if we're more excited by having a safe life than we are about having a life that is saving others, which one are we more leaning into? If we approach life asking, what am I getting? Instead of what can I give because of what was given to me? Which one are we leaning more into? We have way more in common than we'd ever want to believe with the Roman Empire. We have way more in common than we'd ever like to believe with the seven churches. What's squarely in John's eyes here is that there will be Babylon, he calls them, but that this the entirety of the earth will have essentially built this society that's around taking care of itself, loving itself, finding greatness in itself, and will convince itself that it no longer needs the Lord. Look around. Is that not the country we live in right now? 
Is it the way we act sometimes? The message of Revelation is that John draws a very clear line. Yes, it's God wins. Ultimate, ultimate thing. Ultimate theme. But he, he draws a very clear line here and says, whose side are you on? Because you can't have both. You cannot be both. You cannot serve two masters. I cannot serve the world and the Lord. I cannot serve myself and the Lord. There's a large number of people here this morning. I said that when I sat down. I was like, oh my, there's a lot of people here this morning. And that gives me two, because I know what's coming. I know what I'm supposed to preach on today. And that caused me to go for a moment. It caused me to go, maybe I should change because I might offend a whole ton of people this morning. And then the other half of me, it was was a voice from heaven said, no, God brought a lot of extra people here this morning because they need to hear this. Church, we have so many blessings. We are financially blessed. We are blessed with talents. We are blessed with abilities and capacities. But I think we struggle. I think we struggle with being more excited about the things of the world than we are about the things of God. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that we struggle to get adults to work with our children. Why is this so hard? We want families, right? You want families here? Really? If we want families here and we want young people to come to know the Lord, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Then why is it so hard for us to find people who are willing to serve in children's ministry? If we want people to know the Lord, why is it so hard to find volunteers who are willing to just say, you know what? If you want to go out and, and, and work at Daily Bread, I don't know what that looks like, but I'm just going to show up. We have this core, wonderful group of people that do, but we have a whole lot that have never graced the front door of that place. When we have an opportunity, like we've done this faith, hope, love thing the last several years where we try to put together a group who wants to go share the gospel. Why do we have so many people opt out verbally, and aggressively say, no, I'm not doing that. I am so in love with everyone at this church. I love you so much. But we're all called to love somebody else more. And his name is Jesus. I didn't want him to stop me here this week. This is where we are. We are lukewarm. Bottom line, we are lukewarm. We are more excited about staying comfortable, feeling blessed instead of being a blessing. 
enjoying the life that God has provided for us instead of using that what God has provided for us to impact and change the lives of others so that they too might see this Lord Jesus. Which, by the way, is the one who's going to win. Because here's what's going to happen. In a single day, all of these things that Babylon the Great has built, all of the wealth, all of the convenience, all of the technology that we rely on, all of the comfort and all of the safety and all of those things in a single day is going to be gone. 86th, see you later, out of here, gone. And my question is, will we mourn? Or will we do what the angels in heaven did when we started today? Will we celebrate? Because make no mistake, the people of God, or not the people of God, the people who follow Babylon... In chapter 18, if you didn't read it this week, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. They are mourning, lamenting, crying as though everything that, that is of any value to them has been taken. And yet the heavens are celebrating Let's, 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 let's do this again. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. And I want you to, before I read this, I want you to ask yourself as we're reading this, as he's describing the celebration and why they're celebrating and what's happening, heart of hearts, ask yourself honestly, would you be mourning if this was going on? Or would you be celebrating? Because it says something about who we are. It says something about whether or not we're in Babylon's camp or God's. It says, After this I heard something like a loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with their sexual immorality. He has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, hallelujah, listen to this, her smoke ascends forever and ever. It will be burned to the ground. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and the ones who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard something like a loud voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. By the way, not purple and scarlet. Not making themselves their own king or their own queen and not covered in the blood of the saints. For fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. If everything we had today 
right now, this room, this stage, your job, your car, your house, your health, if it's suddenly all just today, and the alternative was you got to see the face of Christ, would you really rejoice or would you mourn the loss? There is literally nothing, I don't care what your passion is or what you value, there's literally nothing on this earth that even begins to compare with being in the presence of God. Nothing. If we continue to hold on to this idea that somehow we can be both of the world and of God at the same time, we're going to continue to be lukewarm. And God has a word for the church that's lukewarm. He vomits them out. That means they're no longer in him. They're no longer with him. And it's a rather abrupt and nasty looking exodus. We have some work to do. We have to ask ourselves bluntly and openly, are we really here to represent the Lord in all things good for Him? Or are we here for ourselves? Are we really committed to His work? Are we just committed to keeping our lives comfortable? Are we committed to serving Him? Or are we suffering from the same delusion as the queen? I'm not a widow. I'm not at a loss. I'm not going to deal with grief or salmon or salmon <laughs> or famine. I'm good. Life's good. Life is good. Jesus is better. And we are called to ask that question and every day we have to get up. I have to get up and ask that question. What's going to be more important to me today? Me or Jesus? And full disclosure, sometimes that's a hard thing. But Jesus wins. God wins. And I want to be on his side. And I don't want to be mourning when all of these things are given away and gone because I have seen the light of Christ and I'm sitting with him. And it is worth more than everything. And if you haven't made that decision yet, that it is worth more, that being with Jesus and doing what he has asked and being one of his saints and being washed in his blood instead of wearing the blood of the world, if you have not been convinced yet that that's the right path, I'm here to tell you, God wins. It's the right path. It's the place you want to be. Sort of like the Kansas City Chiefs. That was meant for Hayden. It's the place you want to be. The world is not. Because no matter what life you're trying to build, eventually it will be gone. Jesus won't be. And he wants you to be with him for all of eternity. Amen? Amen and amen. I think we have a talent offering. Is that correct? I'm going to pray. 
If at any time during our talent offering or our quartet that's going to sing, if you feel like you need to pray with somebody, I'm raising my hand and saying, come pray with me or come pray with somebody else. If you're feeling like you need to repent, this is the now and the time and the place to do that because the, the, the beast, Babylon the Great, the woman, all of them, they're all wrapped up in this satanic kind of thing. One of their main problems were they weren't willing to repent. He gave Satan time to repent. He gave the world time to repent, and they didn't. If you need that, today's a good day to start. There was a lot of time this week with me repenting (laughs) because I'm a human being just like you who needs to recognize that our call is God's and not of the world. Amen? So let's pray. Father God, the message you've given us today is hard. It causes us to reflect, reflect on ourselves on the decisions we make day in and day out. To ask ourselves honestly, are we listening for your voice? Do we know your voice well enough to hear it? Or do we pay more attention to the world's? You're asking us to reprioritize the entirety of our lives. That is a monumental task because we are broken and busted and very self-centered. But let us remember your calling on us as the people of God. This is not about us. This is about you. It's always been about you. You will be the one that is left standing when all is said and done. You are the beginning and you are the end. You're the creator of all things. And you are the author of eternity. It is our hope and our prayer that when it's all said and done, we will be on your side. Show us the way. Open our hearts. Break them open if necessary. Lead us back to you. Because we want to be focused on the things that are eternal, not on the things that will be gone in a moment. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.